Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. While the pandemic has influenced every worker in the United States, it has not done so evenly. Already, there are serious differences between essential workers who stay on the front lines those who are lucky enough to work from home. In short, the country is pretty much in chaos. Some states are closing down for the first time, some are opening back up, others are ignoring their very serious coronavirus issues. Uh, perhaps most disturbingly, many organizations and political figures have been moving towards an economy matters more than lives attitude. It's putting serious burdens on our country's most vulnerable. According to experts I've spoken with and research I've read, among the most vulnerable are women of color, particularly single mothers of color. On top of all of the coronavirus concerns that we have been seeing, there's also been a rise in racial tensions in this country, a lot of overt racism, a lot of people struggling uh, with all that negative energy, uh, attacks on their persons. It's been, it's been pretty serious, and that adds a whole nother layer of uncertainty and unrest to this already unsustainable situation. Here to help us understand the situation and how HR can help is Asha Terry. She is an author, award-winning community mental health advocate, psychotherapist, and certified life coach. She is also the founder of Behavioral Health Consulting Services, LMSW, PLLC, which provides consulting, counseling, and coaching to creatives and small business owners in the wellness and entertainment industries and educational sector. As a mindfulness practitioner, she has consulted with initiatives on maternal health, global workforce retention, and has been a writer and speaker for several outlets focused on mental health. Thank you so much, Asha, for being here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I thought to start off, maybe you could help characterize, uh, generally speaking, of course, what things were like for single mothers of color before the pandemic. Well, our country is often seen parents and mothers in particular as um, a dispensable population. And sadly enough, much of that hasn't changed, particularly for mothers of color, with all of the things that uh, single mothers have to deal with from managing multiple roles of, of parenting and working and educating their children, it makes this time that much more stressful, added on to the worries of the impact of the coronavirus on not only a mother, but how that impacts her entire household. So I think the strains that Black mothers have seen before coronavirus just has been exacerbated during this time, and it's, it's quite stressful. Um, not only on moms, but on their children, because, of course, if mothers aren't well, their families aren't well. Yeah, and that, that concept of uh, dispensable is really, is really one that's been brought to the surface, just generally speaking, because so many companies uh, and political leaders are talking about, well, the economy is more important than lives, you know, and, and some have danced around it and been clever about how they say it. And others have just overtly come out and been like, we need our economies to open and it doesn't matter if people get hurt or killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, people that they thought of as dispensable before, um, it seems like this would just make it uh, even worse. Yeah, absolutely. It has. Uh, 
the clients that I work with, which are primarily young adult professionals, uh, frontline workers, typically are women and women of a specific ethnic group, which also makes up a certain lower socioeconomic status. And so for all of those reasons, those are risk factors to mothers and Black mothers um, having more there's a higher probability that they would be more at risk for losing their jobs or their wages being cut or um, them being the only persons that might be taking care of the entire family, um, putting more pressure on them to get sick. So absolutely, there's been a lot of, um, I think, overt and covert uh, racial uh, overtones during this time, um, and we we understand and we can decode what that language means when we look at who particularly makes up the workforce of essential workers, and the majority of essential workers tend to be people of color, both Black and Latino, um, and then you take a portion of that and look at the numbers of women who are in the workforce in those essential jobs, and that's primarily, again, Black and Latin women. It's been really disheartening to see how, you know, sort of the, these essential workers, so many of them are the lowest paid wages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they were talking about uh, minimum wage, talking about this group of people in particular being impacted the most, and we're talking about um, the overtime regulations, mm-hmm. you know, it, it didn't affect middle class workers as much as it affected people specifically that were being asked to work 70 hours a week and we're being called, uh, you know, whatever title they need to be called in order for them to be considered a, a salary worker, mm-hmm. you know, so that companies could get away with paying them ultimately less than minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, for a second there, it almost seemed like there was going to be this, this large movement of respect towards these workers I know things change for me, certainly. I, I, I wasn't looking at people with disdain or anything like, oh, grocery workers, they're not worth anything. But mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't really think about it um, until I, until everybody came home and it was dangerous to go out. And these people that I've seen every week of my life are still there, but they are being exposed to the virus and being exposed to extra harsh working conditions. And, and it seemed like for a second, maybe we were all going to say, wow, we've really taken this group of people, uh, our fast food workers, our factory workers, our healthcare, you know, particularly like uh, home care providers, we've taken them all uh, for granted and and we really see the value of them. Um, and then it just seemed like that nothing happened and, and they've just been abused this whole time. Yeah, you know, what's interesting for me is I'm trained as a social worker psychotherapist and I've been in this industry for 20 years and what I've seen is the numbers of people who enter this industry tend to continuously be people who work for other people who still make um, the the lowest income on the spectrum of people of healthcare workers and yet we're the ones advocating on the rights of other people and and the the juxtaposition to that is, is just very strange because how can you help people if you're stressed about income or job security or managing a household um, and with the numbers of people who have increasingly had to be hospitalized or people who've had to be locked in with nursing homes or people who can't come home from work because they work in healthcare, it's put so many more people who tend to be brown and black faces at risk for not only Uh, medical 
compromise, but also mental health compromises as well. Yeah, and we're gonna. I want to dive into into specifically talking about you know um, single mothers of color. But before we do, I, I want to help our audience understand the the edge as like what I call it, which is that you've always had this particular group of people uh, are just one one ticket, one arrest, one um, bad day, even in some cases, from being pushed from uh, just barely making it to not making it at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there, whether it's a, a mental health crisis or it's a, I don't have someone to take care of my kid now crisis or just whatever the situation may be. I got fired cause, cause I, I was late because of a life event that I couldn't avoid, you know, um, the whole coronavirus scenario has pushed everybody that was near the edge up against the edge. And a lot of people that were on the edge over the edge. You know, and what we're talking about in these podcasts and, and at my organization is people that are still employed too, and and what that ignores is the huge percentage of the population that is not employed. There's not much employers and HR people can do for them, so we don't talk about it. But it's also really important to remember that for every person that's still employed but is struggling, uh, there is a, another person that was employed and isn't now and is in a, in a much more desperate situation. Yeah. This being the first time in, in our history where this large number of people have been unemployed is, is striking. And the people who are going to feel it the most are going to be people who are in the margins as we call it. And those people do have more risk factors for being closer to the edge um, without making this a grim podcast, uh, this time has also seen more suicides. And oftentimes, even when we think of people with mental health challenges, we often forget the people who are at those margins. We hear the stories of uh, white successful men in corporate America who die by suicide as a result of being laid off or uh, compromised in some other fashion, but we don't think about Black families that often we don't think about black women and men. We don't think about black children, which also have a higher incidence of suicide rates in the country uh, than any other group of people. So even during this time of Mental Health Awareness Month for people of color or Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, as it's mostly known, you know, these subjects are still pervasive in the black community. So if you think about uh, a person who is very close to being on a mental health break because they're stressed with trying to secure childcare and keep their job and maintain wellness, it would be natural to think that their stress level is higher, their risk factors are are more prominent. And so how do we take care of those folks and think of them in um, not only the worst case scenario, but in in any case scenario where we could consider them as professionals that do require more rights, um, as people who need more flexible schedules, including creating workplaces where people in some cases can bring their children to work. And there are environments like that, but we know that's not probable for every industry. It's not probable for every job to have children at work because of safety reasons. So yes, our country needs to do a lot more for Black mothers, Black single mothers, Black families, um, and Black children when it comes to the overall well-being of, of those groups of people. I think historically there's been a the responsibility of you getting to work 
and doing your work and doing it well, it's always been on the employee. Uh, and so employers have, I think they've been doing a lot of uh, back padding, at least a lot of people I've been talking to about, you know, how flexible they've been and how understanding they've been about people that are working with kids at home in particular, you know, and I think that maybe they're taking on a little bit of that responsibility, you know, so I guess the, uh, of saying like, well, maybe, you know, it used to be that if someone didn't come to work three times because they had to take their kid, you know, to like uh, their backup daycare or, or they had to stay home with their kid, you just fire them. Mm-hmm. That's their problem. They should have had it better. They should have figured it out. They should have had a plan, a backup plan, a backup, backup plan. And, and now that's so many people that employers have had to change and say, well, okay, we're going to accept, like this was this big moment for everybody. We're going to accept that people are at home with their kids. Like they were being generous Mm -hmm. um, when really they were up against the wall and had no choice. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on that responsibility shift and how employers are handling it. I take the stance of the, the feminist ideology, which is we need to consider women and mothers as the most important people in our society. They give birth to the whole nation and they raise other people's children. So for, for those reasons alone, we should do much more to protect their mental and physical well-being. And to your point, I think what's being stated underneath what you're saying here is that until it affects privileged people, meaning um, inequity, (laughs) it doesn't seem to matter. And that's very sad because it highlights, once again, these racialized, gendered issues um, in our our country. Um, And so now we're, it's not just Black mothers who are single. It's not just women who um, are raising families on their own. Then it becomes something of urgency and still the attention is not put on the most vulnerable. It's put on still the people who feel more stressed about their privileges being impacted. And, and this is something that I don't think we should use any code language for. I think we should say that it is very much a a race issue. It's also a status and class issue and it's, it's pervaded our, our nation for, for centuries. So there's a lot more that we could do to, um, to show more empathy and create more flexibility around how we can take care of people who do so much to secure that children are fed, nurtured, cared for, educated, while people are also trying to be well, go to work, make a living, all of those things, protect their families, et cetera. So on, on those different scales, we should be looking at all of those intersections that we all are at the margins of instead of it just being, well, until it hits white male America, it doesn't matter. I, I completely agree. And I think that it, we have we're in a real situation when uh, employers are forced to be kind mm-hmm. and understanding because what that means usually is that you know, we always talk about awareness when it comes to unconscious bias and racism, xenophobia, you know, and that's obviously critical. People have to know that the problem's there. But I think what this has revealed, at least to me, is that they did know all along. They chose not to act and now they have to act. So they're going to go and do what employers do which is the bare minimum mm. to make sure, you know, I'm, and I'm sure there are companies out there that are doing more than that, but it, it, 
with employment law, the way it's gone over the years, it proves that if you don't force people to do the right thing, a lot of people won't. And so now people are being forced by forces outside of employment law to be understanding and flexible with their workers in a way that they're frankly uncomfortable with and not used to. And the fear is, is that they're going to just do whatever it takes to, to do just enough and maybe not dive a little further because it's really uncomfortable and people don't want to be uncomfortable and think about uncomfortable things. Well, Jim, I wonder if, if that is true across all industries because I was watching a report a few days ago of a very wealthy <clears throat> gentleman who owns um, a few grocery stores in the Pennsylvania area. And one of his top priorities was ensuring that his employees remain safe. So when the pandemic began, he required that his staff came in with PPE. He provided PPE for them. Um, he also had already started to take some of his business and uh, put the attention on the survival and prevention of his employees so that if they needed to take uh, certain days off or they needed to stagger their schedule, they could because for him, he knows ultimately as a businessman that his business is only going to thrive if his employees are healthy. So he, he set up measures for that to be insured. And that also generates a sense of community um, and care for your employees and the build trust for you to have a strong team. So because he was already prepared to do that and he was able to see success with that, you know, he hasn't lost many employees to the virus. But there's so many things that go on that can give small to moderate businesses a reason to, to cut employees um, and find ways to to deem that people are unfit for work without being explicit about why people may be um, you know, laid off or, or suspended or put on furlough. And, and there's little that the government can do about that at times. So there's, there's absolutely protections in our law about how people should be able to protect their jobs and do so even under different uh, medical leave and disability act. But we, we've seen so many times where there are other reasons that people are laid off because they're not performing well, um, which is another code for people who might be late to work or might not show up exactly the way that they should every time. So that, again, impacts people because those things are almost microaggressions, and they're harder to prove if you've been laid off for those particular reasons. So I don't know right now if we're going to be able to to assume that people are being forced to do what's right because what I've seen in the cases that I've worked with is that if people are laid off, the pressure is put on those who remain um, able-bodied and capable of doing the job, which means more people, fewer people are doing more people's job than there are in the opposite realm of things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and uh, those kinds of things when you force more people, you know, fewer people to do the same amount of work are unsustainable. Mm -hmm. You know, research has been done into this and it, and it shows that a organ, you know, and a lot of the research has been done around specifically maternity leave yeah. and trying to convince employers like it's okay that one of your workers is gone for three months or six months or however long it is. The rest of the people can pick up the slack, but not forever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and we're four months into this, uh, maybe even a little further. And 
in my estimation, that's about the average amount of time that someone can take on a bunch of extra work before that effort starts breaking them down and they become disengaged. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and, and if there are many cases of employers doing not doing the right thing, even when they're being forced to letting people go. And the, the point you bring up about the, um, what is it, the disciplinary issues? It's such yes, a blanket. It is. It, it's such a convenient way. I, I read it. Um, I read stories about it all the time about people that are being specifically targeted almost always because of, you know, their protected class that have been hard workers doing really well for a long time. And then all of a sudden the bad reviews start coming in, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they can't really fight it. And they can't, you know, no one's there's the employers that want to get rid of them are smart enough to not outright say, well, it's because you're black and we want to get rid of you. And, you know, Gee, your performance is really slipping. You know, they make up, make, make situations that are impossible for you to fulfill mm -hmm. and then let you go. And, you know, that's something that uh, at least at our organization, as we try and help uh, HR people navigate these things, you know, we're trying to explain to them the best, the best policies are the ones that make sure that your employees feel cared about, mm -hmm. respected, that, that it's okay when they make a mistake. You know, uh, we talk about, um, giving them the benefit of the doubt, understanding that they, they need the time. And, and most importantly, and, and a lot of things feed into this, they just need to feel respected. Yeah. And if you do those things, you see better retention rates, you hire better people, you have a, a greater diversity of thought when you hire diver, you know, in a diverse way and you encourage diversity in your organization. Mm -hmm. So like businesses have every reason. And I think a lot of people are starting to get it. They have every reason to help this group of people in particular, because that's going to help their bottom line, you know? And I think that the coronavirus has done something to that progress. Unfortunately, what do you think? I believe we're still in the preliminary stages of that because of the phase in with essential workers and everyone else. And we're during COVID at the first, you know, month or so of this, people were still being assessed for coming back to work, uh, maintaining wellness, um, being able to be possibly less closely supervised. And so what I've seen in leadership is we have leaders who already had uh, various styles of leadership that were either the helicopter supervisor that needed to make sure they knew everything that every employee was doing uh, for every moment of the day to those who were more secure and trusted their employees to do the job that they hired them to do when they were in the office. And now that people are getting close to either going back to work or figuring out how they're going to bring employees back safely, we're still seeing that there's so many different ways that people are feeling under duress, whether it's leaders trying to uh, secure their employees to the office safely um, or sooner, even without some safety measures in place, to those people who are contemplating how they're going to manage working in an office while their children are out of school for the summer and maybe there's limited childcare. So I think it's really early to see or assume what's going to, what going to be. I think we're going to have to wait um, probably another six months to really see what the trend was in terms of who was 
responsible for returning to the office, who was invited back to the office, and on, on what level if people are going to be coming back in full-time, part-time, with staggered uh, schedules, and then noticing from that point how people are faring, because we can't see until we notice a trend of the way people are working, whether or not this situation will continue to impact their mental health, which will then impact their ability to work or not. <clears throat> so it might be a little bit early to tell. What specific advice would you have for any HR professional that right now is developing a plan to either continue remote work or to bring people back into work as regards to single women, uh, uh, single mothers of color? That is a difficult one because some jobs are just not equipped to handle the circumstances that different families will go through. You know, depending on the age of people's children, you may be able to have latchkey kids at home and go back to the office and check in periodically by phone or video during the day. You may be able to, if you know your neighbors well enough as a parent, to be able to say, I have to return to work. If you're still home working during the day, would you mind checking in on my children? And, and, and how secure do you feel about that as a parent to do so? So I think some of it is going to be employees have to communicate with their employers prior to going back in if they even have that luxury of saying like I'm, I'm experiencing some challenges I want my job you know you make that very clear I'm, I'm a part of the team I want to continue to be a part of the team but I am asking that there are some accommodations made and, and I don't see why that should be such an issue when we do protect other people who have challenges to be accommodated, whether it's people with physical disabilities or mental health disabilities. We accommodate people so that we can keep folks employed. And the goal is so that we don't continue to tax the unemployment system. So if we want workers, if we want people to feel well, and we want to be able to show that we can empathize, then we have to be more flexible in that. Um, if your job allows for you to be able to bring your children to work, and in some cases that might be possible if they're of the age where they can come to the office with you and not need such close monitoring, if they're not an infant or a very young child, then maybe that's something you can, you can offer up as a suggestion, even if it's only a couple of days a week. So I think at this point, um, part of the emotional intelligence piece that we're really implying here is we're asking employers to become a little bit more pliable in their thinking around how we safely bring people back to work while maintaining their home. That's a great answer. Um, one of the things that I've been talking with some people about is uh, the impact that discretion can have. Um, you know, we know from lots and lots of research that the people that do the best, they make the most money, they get the most opportunities, are the people that are in the office, the people that are at the table when the meetings are happening, that, that have the luxury of attending after work events mm -hmm. with leadership, you know, and these things under the best of circumstances already afforded particularly white men the opportunities over pretty much anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's, it's just a fact. And now you have a lot of organizations that are, are being, they're trying to be flexible. They, you know, they have the right mindset anyway. And they're saying, you know, we're going to open our doors back up. If you feel comfortable coming in, or if you can come in, please come in. If not, keep your at home routine. 
And that is very reasonable. Mm -hmm. But what it does, you know, what it doesn't do is it doesn't take into account the opportunities that will be lost by the people that stay home and the people that will not be able to come back more than anyone else are people that have kids, particularly single parents with kids Mm -hmm. uh, because they just aren't going to have childcare. So they literally can't come back to work. Um, It's nice. They get to keep their jobs. It's better than nothing, but you know, over time in aggregate, those people are going to lose out they're just not at the table and other people are, and those people are going to be valued more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's always pros and cons, Jim, and this time isn't that different. It is about what women have been doing since the beginning of time, which is negotiating their multiple roles. It's something that again, from anyone else's perspective, who's not a parent, and it's not just moms, but anyone who's not a parent who also hasn't had to think about the welfare of their children and their household while also working doesn't get. Um, Mothers are always negotiating their roles. They're always trying to figure out how best to make ends meet financially while also making sure that their children are socializing and are educated and are, you know, healthy and all of those different things. And so, yes, in some cases, we're going to see that people will unfortunately be laid off. Other people may not be offered the same opportunities as those who can get to the workplace. Um, And this, again, is not something that the individual should be blamed for. It's something that our system should be dismantled and reconstructed to accommodate uh, because it's not just single Black women who are having families. So in a lot of ways, this is where I've seen this time and time again, many Black mothers end up finding other means to earn income, whether it's starting a small business from home. Um, this is where the early child care systems came from. Mother Hale in New York City, you know, created uh, child care in a brownstone in New York City and, and took care of people's children so women could go to work. And we've seen small daycares pop up in people's homes all across the country for years. People are, you know, learning how to make small businesses and put them on Etsy so that they can have other streams of income or to start another community-based business so that they can spend more time with their children. As we know, Black women are the fastest growing entrepreneurs in the nation, not always the most um, financially stable, but the, the fastest growing. And with some of the resources available to small business owners and small minority business owners, hopefully Black women will be able to tap into those external community resources to ensure a little bit more financial security for their families. And I've seen that happen for centuries with women before corporate America and since then. The creativity of women to do so has always been present. I think that's what's so wonderful about um, women who've had to struggle because they always figure it out. So to help women to do that might mean to put those things Uh, available to them a little bit sooner um, so that they are not just leaning on their employer for having to choose between going to work and staying at home. I imagine that um, a certain level of flexibility on the parts of employers, like uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is someone that has kids at home, maybe they don't, maybe they don't have 40 hours in them that week or any week, you know, and so they're doing their job in 30 hours 
And, and on one, one hand, that is regarded um, over time, may they basically be, get, become a part-time employee that's mm-hmm. doing full-time work, which has always been an unfortunate place to sit in. And one of the things that I'm hoping that like this discussion and other related ones uh, is for people to understand that the person that's doing a 40 hour work week and 30 hours is a harder worker than the people that aren't under those challenges and needs to be respected and treated equitably within an organization. There's absolutely no reason why that person shouldn't be given opportunities to advance and why they shouldn't be rewarded for their hard work. I mean, they're doing it despite the fact that they don't have the full amount of time available. You know, so the hope is that employers would have a role in helping people that can't, can't come in or they can't do a full set of work, find other opportunities. The reality is some jobs cannot be done from home and some jobs can be done from home. And the ideas that have come up from this time spent in COVID, I think have taught people that. It's that a lot of people fare very well working in different workspaces. Some people need to be in an office. Some people need to separate themselves from their family and be able to go in and concentrate just on work when they're at work. But we also know that that's not always the case when people are at work. There are a lot of reasons why people's minds go askew and there are other things that they have to contend with while they're they're at the office. But as you spoke to, um, everything may not need to get done in a nine to five period, but in the 24 hour day, can we think of other ways to meet employees needs where certain tasks might be able to get done within that 24 hour period as opposed to 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 6 p.m.? Yeah, absolutely. We just published an article on on windowed work. Mm-hmm. That's the idea of putting, I mean, I think originally the idea was that you specifically focus on one task for a certain fixed period of time, and then you focus on another task, but it's migrated into a, maybe you do three hours of work in the morning, and then you take care of your kid for three or four hours, and then um, they have some availability to do a little bit more work. And, and I at least from what I've seen, people, a lot of different uh, HR individuals I've talked to have been pretty comfortable letting their employees do that when possible. Absolutely. So, um, there's really just one more, th- one more area I wanted to talk about, um, which is the return to school. Mm-hmm. Um, I am terrified at the concept personally of kids knowing how, how, they easily they transfer diseases around Mm -hmm. the idea of i don't think any states personally is ready to send them back but they will many of them will and uh i think maybe the perspective of a lot of people that are have been at home with their kids for all this time that's really been interfering with their ability to work are probably going to support that right i mean Mm -hmm. because they'll finally get that break they'll finally be able to focus on their work without their kids being around Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been talking to people about that or, or is that on your radar? Yeah, on a weekly basis. Not many of my clients are parents, but some of my clients are parents of small children. However, I have lots of friends who are professionals that are parents, and it's been hard on them. These are people who are used to going to work and sending their children to school to be educated. And for the past three months before the summer break, they were working from home and working to learn how to school their children from home. And it was very chaotic in the beginning. I have a teenage client right now who 
he himself said to me that it was so hard to concentrate and to get his schoolwork in because he wasn't used to doing computer work uh, on this app that his school advisors and counselors and teachers were using. The teachers were not equipped initially to use those apps. And so there was a lot of disjointed time being wasted um, during the days where kids were expected to be online for school. Once they became more organized, you know, they were able to develop a little bit more routineness to their day, but it was very challenging. And <clears throat> a lot of kids missed out on important events and ceremonies this year that they should have been at their proms, their graduations, um, their dances, etc. Because of COVID, it's very scary too for people to think of sending their children back to any public space. But it's already going on, at least here in, in my state, in New York. Um, daycares have reopened with uh, these plexiglasses around these mini tables. It's really quite striking when you see it. Um, and the classrooms are set up so that the, the tables and chairs are six feet apart. Um, we've seen it happening already. And I think in some ways it's important that we do have those systems in place, but we're also going to need to see that there are enough staff in the classroom to ensure that children are safely distanced, especially younger children who want to touch their friends and touch their face and pick up toys and put them in their mouths. But as you get to the, the older children who can um, self-contain a little bit better, it's, it's a new way of teaching them about spatial distance and spatial awareness and safety. Um, and all of that is going to require, in some ways, a lot more attention from the teachers in the classroom to now add that other part of education into their, their classroom structure. And we'll just have to see how it goes. I have a three-year-old daughter. And uh, when, when things started getting serious and we were at our, um, what ended up being the last time that we sent her to daycare, you know, that day I'm talking to the, the administrators. And I'm saying like, look, you know, this kid, she's three years old. She wants to lick everything mm -hmm. and uh we've gotten sick so many she only goes there one day a week too so oh, wow. we, and we've gotten sick so many times because of because of daycare yeah and uh and you know and they're like well you know we're gonna do what we can and we're you know we can take these measures and then i look over and there she is like licking the table <laughs> and we all got really sick oh the it turns out one of the teachers was sick we don't know if it was coronavirus or not it was very unpleasant whatever it was and uh, it was pretty pre devastating for about a week and a half there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's just like, mm -hmm. that's going to happen. There's no, there's yeah. no, you can't, I can't, I try, you know, unavoidable. To, it is. And that's a kid that doesn't know better who are trying to understand and get her to understand and explain to her, you know, like, look, I'm sorry. Like right now you can't see your friends. If you do, you can't hug them. You know, it's been really challenging. And then you have like, you know, teenagers, uh, I remember being in school. Kids are going to talk, right? The teachers like yeah. stop talking. Kids all talk. They don't yeah. listen. Mm -hmm. Are they going to listen now? I, it's to me the concept is that of sending kids back to school is disastrous. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a way with even with special measures in place that it's not going to be absolutely devastating. And, and many many places have admitted that okay, we can put these measures in place in schools, but what are we going to do about buses? You know, what do you, you can't only the, and that's another situation where better off families will be able to drive their kid to school and people that don't have cars 
you know, the, uh, the, the struggling individuals are not going to be able to have that advantage of stopping their kid from getting on basically what's like a disease bus, you know? Well, you know, I wonder with, with all of the money that it comes in to the MTA from the increasing fares, especially if you live in a big city, it seems like here in my city of New York, every year there's a fare increase and people are paying more money and what we've seen going into folks overtime and those salaries are not low salaries for MTA employees and sadly enough in certain instances such as when we get large snowstorms or there's an interruption in service because of construction the city seems to have all of these extra available resources, extra buses, um, certain um, parole, patrol officers on the streets directing traffic. And I'm not saying that every city has maybe the budget of a large city like New York, but there's money that sometimes I think the general public doesn't realize is available to protect people. And instead it's going into, sadly, the, the pockets of, of wealthy people who want to hold on to those dollars. And we see people who, again, when we talk about corporate structure and also capitalism, we see that people at the top are making the most money where people who are suffering are making the least. If we reallocate some of those resources so that we can keep buses cleaner, and we can have maybe some support patrols of people on buses to ensure that kids are distanced. Um, we may be able to protect families and children and safely get kids back to school. I think, again, when we look at paraprofessionals and assistant teachers and head teachers in, in classrooms, oftentimes there's not enough support in those classrooms. And it's not because there aren't enough qualified people to do those jobs, but a lot of times those opportunities are not given to the people in the communities that look like those kids. Um, and that's been a, a huge issue in urban cities for a very long time. So when we talk about jobs, we can create jobs for people who not necessarily need a college degree to be able to support a head or an assistant teacher in the classroom to ensure spatial distance, to ensure that kids still learn. And we're going to have to figure it out because as of right now, the White House and WHO and um, CDC don't quite know how long this virus will last and how many more ways of our lives will be impacted. It's really a touch and go. It's a, a new wave they've been predicting going to happen in the fall when kids are expected to return to school. And we can't possibly continue to keep this up, not only for our economy, but also for our children, because kids need to socialize, they need to go outside, they need to play, they need to be active. And how else will we do that if we don't put the measures in place that the medical systems have been advising and educating people to do? And there's so many more billions of of dollars being funded from different um, outlets that are pouring into the system to protect people by providing more PPE. So I don't know if, if um, we could catastrophize it. I think there's a lot of real fear uh, because we've seen people get sick, but that's also because we haven't um, we've been listening to the White House tell us exactly how we should function when we've seen other smaller governments doing it quite successfully. 
Yeah, those are all really good points. I, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have for today, but thank you so much, uh, Asha, too. for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. Absolutely. Listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast with any thoughts or concerns. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.